Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is really excited. When I mean really excited, I mean I can't control her on this one, so I'm just going to have to let her run wild. Alex, who have we got on today? I was a kid when Jurassic Park came out. You cannot cage my excitement. We have with us today Steve Brissate, who's a paleontologist on the faculty of the School of Geosciences at Edinburgh University. He's not only written over 100 papers on his research in the field and named 10 new dinosaurs, but he's written a fantastic book called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs as well. I can't believe you get to name dinosaurs for a living. Steve, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on here, uh, you know, especially to, for a history podcast. And <sighs> I'm, I'm loving uh, just getting the chance to talk about some, some deep history, some, some ancient, yeah. super ancient prehistoric history. Well, the most ancient are, of all, really. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. How do you go about naming dinosaurs? Is it tempting to call one like Dave or are there sensible <laughs> adult requirements? Oh <laughs> there. Could there you are, like? I just um, can you name the next one, Davosaurus? I mean, I, I could actually. I could call it Davosaurus. That that's true. Um, that would be incredibly dull, incredibly boring. I think um, <laughs> that goes against all the reasons why dinosaurs are so cool. And one of those reasons is, you know, a lot of dinosaurs have incredible names: Tyrannosaurus and Brontosaurus, and so but on. This is a British thing. <laughs> you live here. You know what we do. We do. Oh no! To be fair, it's not Dave in Scotland, but in England, if you can't pronounce someone's name. Um, you just call them Dave, or if you've forgotten their name, you just refer to them as Dave. So Davosaurus would be hilarious. Can yeah. I pitch one? Yeah, I've go got, ahead. I think you should call it History Hackosaurus. You know, I can do that. Maybe <laughs> if uh, you know you uh, support our, our research, support my lab with the a nominal contribution, we can name something. <laughs> we're Ooh, we're broke, but, but what if we give? <laughs> what if we bring cake to the field work? You know what? I'm just I'm just hoping to do field work. I'm just hoping to get back out in the field again. You know, everything's been oh. this year, sadly, and for good reason, of course. But uh, that's been one of the toughest parts of the last few months is just having all of our trips. We had trips uh, to New Mexico, trips to Scotland, um, and a few other trips to, to dig up fossils that, that we can't do, which is a real shame. But hopefully everything's getting back oh. to some semblance of normalcy. Well, if you ever need anyone, if you ever need anyone to just shovel dirt for you and basically be dig slave, I'm here. 
in New Mexico, <laughs> you might regret that. You might regret that because sometimes we do need really good shovelers, and it yeah. is. Believe I mean, me, it is not the romantic work you might see if you watch. No, show. no, but it's still it's better than walking up and down my car park at home trying to get oh, my steps sure. in. Yeah, so I'm right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a good observer, if that counts. I like to watch while people dig, you know, and I can motivate you very well. Possibly they're not going to fund you to do that, though. <laughs> Why not? I think, I think I'll be really great at that kind of job. Should we be sensible and talk about the history of the dinosaurs? Yeah, we should. Even though, However much it. we want to go digging and do all sorts of really exciting things, we've got to talk about dinosaurs. Let's get this side, this side out and then we can go do some digging. But can you tell us about that? I'm going to say this completely incorrectly, but bear with me. The Permian period. Did I say that correctly? You did. Yeah, yeah, you did. So we'd always kind of assumed, though, that these kind of the dinosaurs just was like, ta-da, they're here. But there was life before. And what did it look like? There was. So I think dinosaurs are synonymous with prehistory for so many people. Uh, but really, in the grand scheme of the history of life, dinosaurs are pretty recent. The first dinosaurs lived about 230 million years ago, which is a long time ago, mm. obviously, 230 million years. I mean, humans have only been around, you know, as, as homo sapiens, as our species for about 200,000 years. So the dinosaurs, they are old, but the earth is four and a half billion years old. And the first living things are probably about four billion years old. It was around that time that the first little single celled microscopic bacteria started to pack DNA and RNA together behind their cell membranes in the oceans and evolve life. Uh, so there is actually a huge amount of diversity of life over time for a few billion years it was only these little single cells. That was it. Tiny things, you would need a microscope to see them. All bacteria, they were individual cells. They didn't group together to form larger organisms. But then sometime, probably roughly about uh, a billion and a half years ago, maybe two billion years ago, those cells found a way to clump together and become multicellular organisms. And then that over time, these things started to evolve different systems, organ systems, <laughs> blood, blood and vascular systems, and so on. Some of them grew shells, some of them formed skeletons, and it was about 540 million years ago that you see this explosion of diversity in rocks all over the world. All of these new fossils start to show up of things that are big, things that clearly have many different cells, things that have skeletons, and they are members of the animal groups that we know today. There's corals and there's clams and uh, there's all sorts of things, sponges, there's arthropods. So that was life's big bang. And that was a good three and a half billion years after the first living single cells evolved. So really, for so much of Earth history, the, the world would have looked pretty dull to us. But then over the last 540-ish million years, you've had this explosion of evolution and dinosaurs eventually came out of that. Dinosaurs evolved from reptiles. Those reptiles evolved from amphibians. Those amphibians had evolved from fishes that changed their fins into limbs and grew fingers and toes and moved on to the land. And that happened about 390 million years ago i love the description in the book of the extinction at the end of the permian period can you recreate it a bit for our listeners it was just brilliant right. you asked about the permian yeah 
track of things in the grand sweep of Earth history there. So you asked about the Permian. Uh, the Permian was a period of time from roughly 300 million years ago until about 250 million years ago. It was the period of time right before the age of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So there were no dinosaurs yet living in the Permian, but there were different types of amphibians. There were different types of reptiles. There were no mammals yet, but some of the immediate ancestors of mammals were living in the Permian. And so these animals were all living on one single giant mega supercontinent. That was what the Earth looked like back then. There was no Asia, there was no North America, no Europe, no South mm -hmm. America, none of that. Just one giant glob of land, all of the land connected together. This was called Pangaea, and it stretched from North Pole to South Pole, surrounded by one global ocean. And so if you were an ambitious little reptile, let's say you could walk from pole to pole, nothing was really stopping you, except it was a pretty harsh world. The climate across the supercontinent was really fickle and really vicious in places, especially around the equator. It was so hot and so humid. We're talking about, you know, well in excess probably of 50 degrees Celsius or so year round. Bordering the equator on both sides, there were vast deserts, arid wastelands that hardly anything could live in. And then in the higher latitudes, it was a, a calmer world. But still, there were these giant monsoonal storm systems that every year would pummel the supercontinent of Pangaea. So this was not an easy or safe place to call home. Uh, but there were a lot of reptiles and amphibians and, uh, and mammal ancestors and so on that did find a way to survive on Pangaea. They were doing well. There were diverse ecosystems. There were plants that were well adapted to that world. Doing well until about 250 million years ago. And then all of a sudden you have these volcanoes start erupting in what is now Siberia. And these are not normal volcanoes. These are not the sort of volcanoes that we know of that when, when when a volcano starts to erupt somewhere around the world we probably see pictures we see pictures of lava flows maybe we see pictures of of an explosion of ash clouds of ash coming out of a volcano mm -hmm. those are the volcanoes we know but these volcanoes 250 million years ago were super volcanoes mega volcanoes whatever sort of hyperbolic term you want to use they they were essentially just giant cracks in the earth that opened up probably miles long maybe even bigger than the Grand Canyon, that simply spewed out lava. They spewed out lava. It's like the earth was cut with a giant machete and it was bleeding lava for millions of years. And that lava ended up covering a huge amount of Asia and Europe. The rocks that were formed from that lava, you can still find those covering a land area in Siberia that's essentially the same area as Western Europe. And so wow. that gives you just a, a, some of a sense of just how much lava there was. And so anything living in that area would have, you know, been, been engulfed in the lava, any of those reptiles, amphibians, anything. But the bigger problem was what came up with the lava. It was the silent killer. It was the gases. It was the carbon dioxide. It was the methane. It was these toxic, nasty greenhouse gases that rode up with the lava from the deep earth. They went into the atmosphere, poisoned the atmosphere, led to a runaway greenhouse event, runaway global warming. Temperatures spiked by 5 to 10 degrees, something in that vicinity. And they did so pretty rapidly, although 
not as rapidly as what's happening today, which is a bit worrying, I think, because when the temperatures spiked back then, they caused an extinction. They caused what we uh -huh. call a mass extinction. And that is uh, a term that refers to an event that's global, that's rapid, that's simultaneous, where you have lots of species all over the world going extinct at the same time in a relatively small amount of time, geologically speaking. So over the course of probably a few tens or hundreds of thousands of years, you had 90 to 95% of all species dying out because of the global warming caused by those volcanoes. And it was after that extinction in the brave new world, in the largely empty world, where you had the immediate ancestors of dinosaurs emerging onto this scorched landscape and basically seeking out a new life for themselves. So it's only because that extinction cleared away so many species that the dinosaurs even had an opportunity to evolve, which I think is a bit poetic in some ways, mm -hmm. and it's also a bit ironic in some ways, because it's essentially the opposite story of what happened much later when the dinosaurs died, and the mammals survived, and the mammals took over from the dinosaurs. So, the, you know, the beginning of the time of dinosaurs and the end of the time of dinosaurs bookended by these mass extinction events. Sam's, it's like the circle of life. It's Mufasa. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> for me it's just it's, it's just crazy like life death life death life. is it gonna happen again well we're right in the middle now of, of what a lot of scientists call the sixth extinction the reason why it's called the sixth extinction and maybe some of you have heard that term there's there's a great book um by elizabeth colbert called the sixth extinction and that's because in the history of life in the fossil record we see five great mass extinctions the one at the end of the permian is one of them it's the worst one ever the most species died and the one at the end of the cretaceous period when the asteroid came down and killed the dinosaurs that's another and then there's a few more too and what's happening today so many species are going extinct so quickly that it really does look like we're in the middle of a mass extinction. A mass extinction, sadly, that's caused by us, by, by the greenhouse gases we're pumping into the atmosphere, by the forests we're clearing, by the pollution, the waste we're dumping into the environment. So it, it really, we are probably living through the early stages of one of these terrible extinction events. And I hope, I really, really hope that we can learn from the past, we can learn from the fossil record in order to stop this or to slow it down or to mitigate it or at least to understand how our earth might change. And fundamentally, that's why paleontology, that's why fossils, that's why dinosaurs are so important to study. You know, we study them for the same reason that historians study manuscripts and archeological sites and so on, because we wanna know what's happened in the past. We wanna learn from times there were problems, time there was chaos, time there was destruction, and, and hopefully we can learn from that and we can do better. So after, obviously, you said it was 90% of uh, life dies, and then it begins again. So what is a dino, bear with me, a dinosauromorph? Mm -hmm. Dinosauromorph, it's, it's a really unwieldy sounding word. <laughs> it's one of these classic scientific words uh, that, that uh, maybe that, that I think is a little more complicated than it needs to be. Basically, a dinosaur morph is one of the very closest cousins of dinosaurs. 
they are the animals that are the, the few branches right outside of dinosaurs on the family tree. So you can think of them as the first cousins of the dinosaurs, also the ancestors of the dinosaurs. They are the types of animals that dinosaurs evolved from. And it was these dinosauromorphs that were part of that wave of new species after the end Permian extinction. And we start to see their fossils really soon. Within one or two million years, we have footprints and handprints that one of these tiny cat-sized, house cat-sized dinosauromorphs left behind in Poland as they were frolicking around the edge of a lake. These things, you could have held them in your hands. They would have probably made really good pets if we were around back then. Uh, they, they weighed just a few pounds, most likely. They have these long, gangly, stilty, skinny arms and legs. They have these small little bodies. Their arms and legs were held directly underneath their bodies. They didn't stick out sideways like the arms and legs of, say, a lizard, an iguana, a crocodile. So they could move fast. They had good posture and they had fast speed. And that was part of the reason why they became successful. And once they started to spread around Pangaea, so the supercontinent was still there, the supercontinent didn't end with the volcanoes. So these dinosauromorphs started to spread around the supercontinent. They started to get bigger. They started to diversify. Some ate meat, some ate plants. Some uh, started to walk on only their hind legs. And by 230 million years ago, for sure, we have true dinosaurs. And actually, the true dinosaurs probably evolved a little bit earlier, but we just don't have their fossils yet. Um, so we're in the Triassic period now. Uh, why do people describe this as the beginning of the modern world? And do you agree? I do. I do agree. So the Triassic is the time after the Permian. Mm -hmm. uh, the dividing line is the extinction. Uh, similar to human history, you know, geologists divide time into these periods that have names and and the boundaries between these periods are usually either an extinction event or some sort of big climate change or environmental change or something like that so the permian ends with that great extinction caused by those volcanoes in siberia and then the tri triassic begins afterwards as the world recovers and it took about five million years for the world to recover from the volcanoes. And, and what I'm, I mean by that is it took about 5 million years for the number of species to equalize or exceed the number of species that were there in the Permian. And it took about 5 million years for complex ecosystems to come back together on land and in the ocean, the sort of food chains that we know that are healthy, that have big predators at the top and smaller predators and big plant eaters and smaller plant eaters and insect eaters and so on. So the recovery took a long time, but as part of that recovery, so many new groups of animals evolved. They originated and they started to diversify. The dinosaurs were one of them, and the dinosaurs live on today as birds. So really we can say birds got their start, at least their distant start because of that mass extinction. But we also, in the Triassic, we see the first turtles, we see the first modern style lizards, we see the first crocodiles. We see the first mammals, too. So all of these groups of animals that still today, 250, 240-ish, whatever, million years later, still today are part of the fundamental fabric of our world. Those animals go back to that recovery period when the earth was healing from those volcanoes, when the earth was largely empty, and when new animals had this 
heady period of time to evolve and diversify and experiment and spread around. So our modern world, we can trace so much of it back to that extinction. And in that way, it really is kind of a circle of life thing because that extinction gave the opportunity for rebirth. So what do the actual, what, what do the best dinosaurs look like? Well, the very first dinosaurs, uh, so we find the fossils of the first dinosaurs in a few places, but the best place is in Argentina. There's a place called Ishigalasto, uh, or also known as the Valley of the Moon, and that's because it's a badlands area, and it's really almost creepy topography, I have to say. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's eerie. It's almost alien-like. It does look like, if you look at a picture, you look at like Google Earth or something, and you look at this part of Argentina, it does look like you're looking at a picture from the lunar rover. Um, but it's a beautiful place, and um, it's full of fossils. The rocks that, that are sculpted into those badlands are full of fossils, including fossils of the first dinosaurs. The very first dinosaurs were humble. The very first dinosaurs were not dominant. They were not at the top of the food chain. They, they looked nothing like a T-Rex or a Brontosaurus or a Triceratops. The, the first dinosaurs, the biggest ones, were about the size of horses. There's one called Herrerasaurus that's about the size of a horse, named after the, the rancher in Argentina who found the first bones uh, several decades ago. But most of the dinosaurs from Argentina are much smaller. They're the size of humans or the size of, really the size of dogs and cats. So there's things like Eoraptor, Eodromius, and so on. Um, there's a lot of Eos, you know, Eo meaning dawn. <laughs> so there's a lot of these names, talking about how you name things, you know, a lot of these first dinosaurs are named uh, because they're so old and, and, and their early age or their pioneering status factors into their name. Um, these, you know, some of them ate meat. Herrerasaurus was a meat eater. It had sharp teeth that looked like steak knives. It had big claws on its hands. It only walked on its hind legs. Its arms were free for, for grabbing things and slashing things. Uh, but other ones were plant eaters, and other ones walked on all fours. Um, but none of them were dominant animals. The ecosystem they lived in, in the Triassic, in Argentina, the dinosaurs were were, were rare components of that ecosystem. They were B or C list actors. And the real stars were some of the crocodile line animals. So early crocodiles and their closest relatives. Um, and so there, so the top of the food chain was this animal called Saurosuchus, which was essentially an ancient croc. And this thing was, you know, much bigger than a, than a Jeep. Um, we're talking, you know, probably seven, eight meters long, something like that. It had a huge head, enormous and a peg-like teeth, walked on all fours, ferocious animal. If you look at its head and you just glance at it quickly, it's a dead ringer for a, a T-Rex. You know, when you look in detail, it looks different, but it's that type of animal. It is a big, bruising meat eater, but it is not a dinosaur. It is a crocodile type animal. It was eating dinosaurs. And that's what it was like during much of the Triassic. The dinosaurs were there. They were evolving. They were diversifying. They were starting to stake their claim, but they were not the ruling animals on the earth. It was their crocodile relatives, and the crocodiles are actually very close relatives of the dinosaurs. It was their crocodile relatives that were the top dogs at that time. And so that's quite interesting because, of course, crocodiles live on today. 
but they're not very diverse. They're not very successful. There's only about 25 species. Yes, they're ferocious. I mean, you don't want to run into a gator if you're nope. down in the Everglades <laughs> or, you know, or you're a crocodile if you're on the Nile or a gharial if you're in India. Of course, you know, these are nasty animals, but there's not that many of them in terms of, of their species. Uh, and they only really live in the tropics or the subtropics. They only really live where the water meets the land. But back in the Triassic, the crot group was incredibly diverse. There were scores of species. You know, many hundreds of these things have been found. They had a huge range of body sizes. Some of them ate meat and were at the top of the food chain. Others ate plants. Some lost all of their teeth and had beaks, if you can imagine that, if you can imagine a crocodile with a beak. Uh, others had sails on their backs. Others were covered in armor and spikes. And so you just had this enormous diversity of the crocodile side of the family tree. And they were the Triassic winners. They were the ones that were dominant. They were diverse. They were keeping the dinosaurs down for the at least the first 10, 20, 30 million years of the history of dinosaurs. If you were around back then watching the world unfold, you would probably never imagine that these humble, rare, second fiddle dinosaurs would eventually go on to take over the world and evolve into things like T-Rexes and things like the long neck dinosaurs that became bigger than airplanes and, mm. and so on. You would think that maybe the crocs would do that, but that's not what happened. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's two key things, isn't there, that leave the way open for dinosaurs to take over. Yes, that's right. And so there, there's probably several components of it, uh, really. But there's there's one major thing, one super major thing that explains the rise of dinosaurs to dominance more than anything else. And that is another extinction, yet another extinction. And I think we're starting to see here that these sudden, unpredictable mass extinctions, they are such a driver of life and of evolution because they can clear the deck and they can allow new things to evolve. And they also... Simply put, they divide the world up into winners and losers. And what happened was at the end of the Triassic period, 
We're about 200 million years ago now. This was about 50 million years after the uh, volcanoes in, at the end of the Permian. The crocodiles are dominant. The crocodiles are ruling the world. But then something happens. The supercontinent of Pangaea starts to break apart. And of course it did. Of course it did. We don't have a supercontinent anymore. The reason we have separate continents, the reasons we have a North America, the reasons we have a South America, Africa, is because the supercontinent had to break up at some point. And that point was 200 million years ago. Now, you can kind of see how the continents match together today. You can see that South America and Africa fit together as puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because they used to be connected. They were connected up until about 200 million years ago. Then they started to split. The split took a while. Eventually, the Atlantic Ocean marked that dividing line. It marked the fracture zone. But before water could rush in, the cracking continent bled lava. Again, it was a time of volcanoes, of these huge supervolcanoes or megavolcanoes. Now, it wasn't quite as bad as at the end of the Permian, but you had about 600,000 years of these big gashes opening up along the fracture zone in the middle of Pangaea, and those gashes, they spewed out lava. Some of those lava flows would have been like the height of the Empire State Building, just massive rivers, tsunamis of lava. You can see the rocks that were left by these eruptions today, all along parts of the Atlantic seaboard, including around New York City. And for those of you that, that live in New York or have been through New York, if you're, if you're on Manhattan and you look westwards across the Hudson River into New Jersey, you see that much of New Jersey is up on a cliff, and these cliffs are called the Palisades. The George Washington Bridge is built into those cliffs. Those cliffs are lava rock. That lava rock was formed about 200 million years ago from those volcanic systems that ended the Triassic as Pangaea split apart. Now the lava turned into rock, but once again, it wasn't only about the lava drowning things, it was about the gases that came up with the lava, the carbon dioxide, the methane. And that stuff went into the atmosphere. And once again, global warming, warming, runaway greenhouse, big climate change, very sudden uh, changes to the temperature, to environments. And once again, you had a mass extinction. And that extinction killed off at least 30% of all species, but probably a lot more, probably more like 70% or something like that. And amongst the victims were almost all of those crocodile animals. Now, some of them did survive because we have crocs today, so the ancestors of modern crocs survived, but a huge amount of the diversity of that group, all of those meat eaters and plant eaters and the ones that were top predators that were bigger than jeeps, the ones that uh, had the armor and the spikes and the sails on their backs and the beaks, all of those things died out. They died out, but the dinosaurs were the great Success story. They were the survivors. They were the winners of that extinction. The dinosaurs sailed right through that extinction. And we don't know why. We don't have a really good convincing answer as to why. It is, I think, one of the the biggest mysteries about dinosaurs that still exists. You know, there's we've learned a lot about dinosaurs over the last few decades, especially, but there are still some big gaps in our understanding. There are still some 
big, big, big mysteries that the next generation of paleontologists are going to have to solve. And I think this is the biggest one. Why were dinosaurs able to endure that climate change when their crocodile competitors were not? And I don't have a good answer. It could have had something to do with how dinosaurs grew. It could have had something to do with them being warm-blooded, with them having feathers, with them being able to run faster, with them having more efficient lungs. With, I mean, there, there's a million different possibilities. You could take the dinosaurs and the crocs and compare them and see what the differences are. And you could hypothesize that any of those differences potentially could have been the key to survival for the dinosaurs. But we don't know why but but what we do know is regardless of the explanation as to why the dinosaurs survived the dinosaurs did survive they sailed through the extinction hardly any of them died the meat eaters made it through the plant eaters made it made it through the small ones made it through the larger ones made it through and then as the triassic ended with that extinction the next period of time started and that's called the jurassic period and that's a word that everybody knows because of Jurassic Park. And there's a reason it's called Jurassic Park. And that's because the Jurassic is the time when dinosaurs properly became dominant. Dinosaurs spread around the world. They grew to colossal sizes. They became the apex predators. They became the ferocious, incredible beasts that fuel our imagination. This is when their family tree started to diversify, to branch off like mad. This is when you get meat-eating dinosaurs the size of buses, you get long-necked dinosaurs the size of airplanes, you get dinosaurs with horns and spikes and frills and dome heads and duck bills and all of these other things that we think of when we think of dinosaurs. That was in the Jurassic, it was after the extinction, and really, in large part, it was because their crocodile competitors had been killed and they had this wide-open playing field in the Jurassic to evolve in. Amazing. Um I want to ask you about some of the things that you found um, out in the field. Can you tell us about the dinosaur dance floor on the Isle of Skye? Yeah, I love this one. This is maybe my favorite discovery uh, that 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 uh, my crews have ever made. Um, and this plays right into the story we're talking about now because th these are Jurassic aged fossils, and they are uh, fossils of big dinosaurs. Some of the first dinosaurs to grow to truly gargantuan sizes. And so the backstory here is there's a place in Scotland, a very beautiful place, an island off the west coast called the Isle of Skye. A uh, very famous place now. A lot of Hollywood films are, are made out there um, and is very popular with tourists. It's hard to even go there anymore. The roads are so clogged with, with tourists. Um, maybe not right now, but I'm yeah. sure they'll be back. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's a, it, just a... a fascinating landscape. You have mountains, you have bogs, you have moors, you have a lot of beautiful coastline, you have, you know, whiskey distillery there, just, just, you know, an enchanted Scottish landscape. And part of that landscape are these Jurassic Age rocks that fringe the coast, especially in the northeastern part of the sky. And these rocks were made about 170 million years ago, back when Scotland was part of a small island perched in the middle of the very narrow Atlantic Ocean because the Atlantic was just starting to open up as Pangaea was breaking apart. And much warmer, much wetter, you know, nothing like Scotland today. Now we've, we've uh, been going there, my group from the University of Edinburgh, my, my lab and my research team, we've been going there pretty much every year, always looking for new fossils. And we, we were there a 
few years ago, about five years ago now, uh, and we went to a place in the far northeastern tip of the island, a place called Duntulum. Uh, it's as Scottish as you can get. You know, there's there's a, 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 the ruins of a 14th century castle up there. Um, just a really, really remarkable place. And fairly popular with tourists, very popular with geologists, uh, because there's a lot of rocks exposed up there. And a geologist friend of mine showed me a little bone that he found. And and he wasn't an expert on bones. He, he's one of the you know, great experts on rocks and on ancient environments. But he, he knew it was a bone. He collected it. He didn't know what to make of it. He showed it to me. And I could tell that it was the jawbone of a little crocodile, a tiny crocodile. Because remember, we're in the Jurassic. So most of these crocs died out at the end of the Triassic. And so when I saw that little jawbone, that got me really excited. And I thought, well, we better go up there. There could be more fossils. Maybe we can find the skeleton of one of these crocodiles. Maybe we can even find the skeleton of a dinosaur. And uh, we went up there with high hopes. <laughs> we were there all day. We were literally on our hands and knees crawling around this expanse of rock that juts out as a, a rock platform about 100 meters or so into the very frigid waters there of the North Atlantic. And so we, can we could only be there at low tide. So the tide was starting to come in. It was getting late. We hadn't found anything. We were really discouraged. Uh, so we, we got up and we started to walk back to our cars. And we noticed there were these big holes in the rock. I was walking with Tom Challens, who's a, a good friend and colleague of mine uh, in Edinburgh, paleontologist here. And we were walking together, and, and Tom had noticed one of these holes. And uh, we just started talking about it and started kind of joking about them. And then, though, we started to realize, wait a minute, actually, there's not just one or two of these things. There's hundreds of these holes, and each one was about the size of a car tire. And we just hadn't paid much attention to them because we were on our hands and knees looking for small bones, you know, face to the rock. And these things were just too big. They weren't in our zone of sight, really, when we were so hyper-focused on the rocks. But as we saw, there were hundreds of these things. We also noticed that they made a pattern, that there was a bit of a left-right, left-right zigzagging pattern. And we noticed that these things were paired together. There was often a smaller crescent-shaped one in front of a much bigger horseshoe shaped one and we could see some of these things from the side and we could see that they were actually impressed into the rock so they must have been formed before that rock was rock back when it was just soft sand and mud so something must have been pressing into that soft sediment and later it was hardened into rock. Well, it dawned on us very quickly that we had seen things like these before, not in Scotland, but in other parts of the world. And these things were fossils. <laughs> they just were not bones and teeth. We had been looking for bones and teeth and skeletons all day, but these were a different type of fossil. They were what we call trace fossils, a record uh, that, that an animal leaves behind. And in this case, these were footprints and handprints. And there's really only one animal that's ever lived in the entire history of the earth that was so big that it would make a hole the size of a car tire every yeah. time its hand or foot hit the ground. And we're talking about one of these long-necked dinosaurs, what we call the sauropod dinosaurs. That's the group that includes things like Brontosaurus and Diplodocus, the very biggest dinosaurs that ever lived, some of which were bigger than Boeing 737 airplanes, believe it or not. These ones are not quite that big, but they were probably the size of two, three, maybe even four elephants put together. 
They could probably stick their necks two or three stories into the sky. These were some of the very first truly giant Jurassic Age sauropod dinosaurs. Um, T-Rex is my absolute favorite, in case you hadn't noticed already. <laughs> what can a real paleontologist tell me about him that I didn't learn watching Jurassic Park? So I know not to move because his eyesight's terrible, and I know he has silly little arms, um, and that he's pretty badass. Yeah, well, T-Rex, I hate to say it sometimes because it makes me sound very cliched, very dull, but it's my favorite dinosaur, which yes. <laughs> I think so many paleontologists would say the same thing. Um, it's just a remarkable animal to think that evolution produced an animal that was the size of a bus, 13 meters long, weighing seven or eight tons, with a head the size of a bathtub, with 50 railroad spike or banana-sized teeth mm. that could crush through the bones of its prey with big muscular legs, but those pathetic little yeah. arms that cause us so much consternation. I mean, it, it's a marvel of evolution. It is the largest pure meat eater that has ever lived on land in the entire history of the earth that we know of. Uh, now, T-Rex lived in the Cretaceous period. That's the time that came after the Jurassic period. So in the Jurassic, dinosaurs are diversifying, they're spreading around the world, they're getting bigger, and that continued in the Cretaceous, which was really the heyday of the dinosaurs. Now, I have an entire chapter in, in my book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, about T-Rex. I have this it made me so happy. <laughs> you know, I'm glad. You know, some people didn't like it. If you look at some of the uh, you know, one-star reviews uh, online. Uh, I, do you know what? I love them. My favorite one-star reviews on, on our books as writers is the ones that say, I haven't read this, but, but boo. Oh, yeah, sure, right. one yeah stars, I haven't read it, boo. but you know, what, the, the corner was... Uh, was uh, folded over when Amazon sent it, or I couldn't easily download the Kindle version. One yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, God bless him. Um, but in the book, I have an entire chapter on T-Rex. And, it, you know, it's kind of like this. I, I kind of frame it in a cheeky way as this, you know, unauthorized biography of the celebrity kind of thing. Yeah. And what I want try to do in that chapter is, is describe T-Rex, talk about what T-Rex was really like, talk about a lot of the really amazing research that's going on these days by all kinds of different scientists studying T-Rex. For instance, um, Sarah Birch is a, a young paleontologist. We actually went to school together, and she's an expert on dinosaur muscles, and she has figured out the riddle of the T-Rex arms. Oh, okay. She figured out that those arms are actually very muscular, and the muscles that brought the arms together, kind of towards the body, were the ones that were really strong. And so she has, has forwarded this idea that T-Rex used these arms, you know, not to grab prey, not to hunt, but to brace itself as it was feeding because it was such a violent feeder. It bit so strongly mm. that it needed to brace itself so it wouldn't, you know, fall over uh, when it was feeding. So that's one example. But I tell a lot of stories in that chapter about different scientists, especially, you know, particularly a lot of young scientists, you know, diverse group of scientists from around the world that are studying T-Rex, how it moved, how it fed, how it grew, how it reproduced, how it fought, how it sensed, all of that using different tools. And some of the things that people have found uh, have been quite surprising, to be honest, which does uh, go to show that some of those Jurassic Park stereotypes are a little bit inaccurate. One of them being this idea that uh, if you stood still, T-Rex couldn't see you. That's a big part of the storyline in Jurassic mm. Park. It's a great story, 
But we now know that, first of all, T. rex had a really big brain for a dinosaur. It was one of the smarter dinosaurs out there. It had a pretty big brain in its head. It had very, very good eyesight. It, its eyes faced partially forward, kind of like ours. So it had some binocular vision. It could see in 3D. It also had one of the best noses of any animal that ever lived. It had these huge olfactory bulbs at the front of its brain. That's the part of the brain that controls smell. And yeah. they're massive. They're, they're, they're huge. You know, they're, they're, each one's like the size of a golf ball, which is, you know, which is enormous. That's just the part of the brain that controls smell. So, you know, even if a T-Rex couldn't see you with its really keen binocular vision, it could have easily smelled you and it could have easily heard you too, because we can use CAT scans to see inside the head. That's how we know what the brain looks like. But it also tells us what the ear looks like. And we know that the cochlea in the ear is very long. The cochlea is the part of the ear that actually hears sound. Uh, and, and we know from modern animals, the longer the cochlea, the greater range of sounds they can hear. And we can tell T-Rex could hear really well, too. So it could see well. It could smell well. It could hear well. It was also intelligent. So if you were there trying to stay still, I have no doubt that a T-Rex could have sensed you. My mind is blown. Where are the ears? There's no ears on T-Rexes in Jurassic Park. Are they like built ah, in? Yeah. Yeah. So, ah. so, so mammals like us, but also dogs, cats, so on, are, are the only things that really have big external ears, like a big fleshy bit outside. Most animals uh, just have a, a hole essentially towards the back of their head that sound comes in. So we have the fleshy bits because they're basically satellite dishes that help collect sounds because mammals can hear really well, really, 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 really well, even better than a T-Rex. Uh, but a T-Rex wouldn't have had fleshy ears, but they did have a hole behind their eyes that would have led into uh, the inner part of the ear, which is where the cochlea is. That's mad. I still, I love T-Rex even more. You know, I'm going to hear about this for a really long time. She's just not going to stop talking about it. I'm so excited. I'm going to go and watch Jurassic Park again. You know that bit in Jurassic World where the other dinosaur is kicking off and she goes oh, off God. and you're like, where's she going? I'm like, she's going to get the damn T-Rex. I was sitting in the cinema and I go, boom, T-Rex is coming, man. There's a reason we haven't seen it full on screen and it's because it's going to come and save the day. And that bit where it came striding out of the hangar and she's standing there with the torch, and it was just like, I'll take this from here. Oh, best film character ever. It's my ringtone. The T-Rex from Jurassic Park is Do you want to know, right now I'm sitting here with my head in my hands, shaking my head, going, <laughs> oh, my God. Tom Holland's with me. Tom Holland would be so, so excited if he was here right now, although he's a stegosaurus man. Um, but does T-Rex <laughs> get too much attention? Or is there a badder predator out there? Alex. Shout out to Tom, by the way, if, if you're listening, Tom. Yeah. Tom is one of the great friends of paleontology. Uh, oh, you know, in addition to being one of the, the <laughs> man of after my own writers. heart. Um, yeah, but, but uh, you know, Tom, Tom is so we we always love your support, Tom. And 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 again, Tom is has the open invitation to come with us out out to the Isle of Skye whenever the <laughs> lockdown ends. We couldn't do it this year, but anyway. Um, T-Rex, I mean, I think it deserves its, its reputation, absolutely. Um, it, it, the, the, the remarkable thing about T-Rex, more than anything, you know, put all the hype aside, forget about what it's like in the films, forget about its celebrity status and all that. T-Rex was a real animal. It hatched from an egg that would have been about the size of a grapefruit at most, and it grew into something the size of a bus in about 20 years. 
That's an amazing animal. It bit so hard that it bit through the bones of its prey. It, it could bite through a pickup truck, you know, if such things existed in the Cretaceous. Mm. Um, it had so much brawn. It was huge. The biggest, you know, again, pure meat eater that's ever lived on land. But it was also smart. And it that's the breasts. thing. Like, in my head, I've always thought of it as like a, a shark, which is just a brain and a stomach, and all it does is eat. But you're saying that it's actually got real intelligence as well. Yeah. Brains and brawn. I know it's a big cliched that term but but Mm. but that is what t-rex had and that is what made it such an ultimate predator it was big it could basically eat whatever it wanted uh, through brute strength but it, it it could think it could sense and that combination would have been simply ferocious but it wasn't enough to save t-rex t-rex was actually there 66 million years ago when that six-mile-wide asteroid came down faster than a speeding bullet, smashed into the Earth, the force of over a billion nuclear bombs, wildfires, tsunamis, volcanoes, all kinds of chaos, dust and grime blocking out the sun, forests collapsing, nuclear winter, then global warming, all these disasters that came so quickly. T-Rex was there. T-Rex would have experienced those things. T-Rex could not endure. No dinosaurs could endure except for some birds, which are dinosaurs. Birds evolved from dinosaurs. That makes them dinosaurs. Uh, and, And some mammals made it too. And it was only because of that extinction that we now have our modern world today. Um, we've tragically run out of time for today, but will you come back another time to talk to us in more detail about the end of the dinosaurs and how they evolved into birds? Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. I have had so much fun today. I'm I'm writing a book on mammals now, you know, I'm not quite sure when it will be out, but Mm. uh, that's the next stage following up the rise and fall of the dinosaurs with a book on mammals. So I'd love to come back when when that's out to talk about mammal evolution. Oh, we have to talk about um, Montana. I went to see that fossil that's the two mammoths that fought to the death and they found them all intertwined yep incredible and then, you know that had a had just you know hundreds of millions of years of, of of dominance and then they disappeared and the mammals took over and the stories about mammal evolution are equally fascinating oh, fuck's sake join us tomorrow when we will be talking to steve brassart about dinosaurs this is going to be epic he talks to us about the rise of the dinosaurs and if do you know what if anyone goes for that statue of big mike the t-rex outside that museum in montana i will hunt you down because that is an epic epic statue uh we will also be marking auschwitz um we will also be marking the 80th anniversary i'm just going to cut and paste the other one in there Join us tomorrow when David Starr will be with us to talk about Operation Barbarossa. We have not covered Eastern Front nearly so much as we should have with our World War II podcast, uh, although we have concentrated muchly on the Pacific. So we're going to rectify that with David. Join us for that. It's a really interesting discussion. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.